Appreciate you very much, uh, Brother Tim's message to us this morning. There are several verses in the Bible that I would encourage the Lord's people to memorize. Uh, one of them is Philippians 4 and 13. We can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. And the other one is this text here in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, where it says that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man has done unto me. But the reason that you can say that is based on what Jesus said before that. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you remember that, never forget that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then ye can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That was first said to Jacob. It was reiterated to Moses. Spoken again to Joshua. Right on down the line, that expression, one form or the other, was repeated numerous times in the Old Testament to great men of God to remember that the Lord has promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Memorize those two verses. This morning I'd like to take you, the Lord willing, to the book of Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. We find here that the Apostle John is writing to the church at Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia is one of seven churches that we refer to as the seven churches of Asia. The book of Revelation was a book that was written and designed to fit the needs of all seven churches. Now remember, the Apostle Paul wrote nine letters to seven churches. Uh, two of those letters, or two of those churches received two letters, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica. Each of those letters was designed specifically for that particular church, customized for that church, if you please. But the book of Revelation, this one book, was customized to fit the needs of all seven of these churches. So as John wrote to these churches, he's writing to them a message from Christ. And to each of these seven churches, it's opened up with a statement about the Lord, something important about the Lord. The book of Revelation is unique in that regard in that it gives us certain images of Christ that you don't find in other places. So before each church, the Lord introduces himself in a different way to those churches and then gives a message. But this one book was sent to all seven churches. So to this church at Philadelphia, he introduced himself like this, Thus saith he that is holy, he that is true, and he that hath the key of David. He says, For I will open, and no man shutteth, and I shut, and no man openeth. Now three things are said about Christ here that Christ says about himself as he writes to this church. Thus saith he that is holy. There is only one that is holy in the standpoint of being holiness personified. That's Christ. Thus saith he that is holy. Thus saith he that is true. Jesus is truth personified. Now we're told to walk holy as he is holy, for he that hath called you is holy. There is a wholeness about us if we've been born of the Spirit of God because we have the divine nature of Christ within us. And we are to apply that, exercise that, to live a holy life. And then the Lord in his divine nature inside of us has given us the spirit of truth. And so from that point of view, we have the capability of walking in truth, to worship God in spirit and in truth. So thus saith he that is holy, thus saith he that is true, 
Thus saith he that hath the key of David. Now, you'll find this expression found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. And you go back and you study the historical lesson there. You'll find two men. You'll find a man by the name of Shebna. Shebna was in control of Israel at this particular time, but he was vile and he was corrupt. And therefore he caused the people to be corrupt. And God speaks to him and says, Where have you hewn out your own sepulchre? He says, you're not going to need it here because I am going to deliver you into the hands of the enemy into a foreign land and you're going to die and you're going to be buried there. You've hewn this sepulchre out for nothing. And he said, then I will call my servant Eliakim. And he says, I will strengthen him and I will clothe him and I will give unto him the key of David. And he shall lay it upon his shoulder. In other words, he was going to put him in charge. He was going to make him the administrator of the kingdom. And he says, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Now this is really important language because for this, at this particular time, this particular man in this particular way is going to be a type of Christ. It is Christ who says in Revelation 3 and 7 and 8, Thus saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. A key locks and a key unlocks. A key lets you in, a key keeps you out. He says, now I'm laying the key of David upon my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we read earlier in Revelation 1 and 18, where Christ said, I'm he that liveth, was dead, behold, I'm alive forevermore, and have the keys, plural, of hell and death. Now Christ has those keys, keys of hell and keys of death. They belong to Christ. And we come over to the 20th chapter of Revelation, and you'll find where heaven was opened, and an angel came down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit. And he opened up that bottomless pit and he bound Satan and cast him in for a thousand years. Now, I don't think that's a literal thousand years, but it does represent a period of time. And he's going to be in there for that specific period of time. And it's important when you read the scriptures to notice when God does things, oftentimes it's for a particular period of time, and that time cannot be shortened and that time cannot be lengthened. He's going to be cast into a bottomless pit by a power superior. An angel comes down from heaven with a great chain and he binds Satan and casts him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He has the key to that bottomless pit and there he will remain for this particular period of time. After that, he must be loose for a little season where he shall go out to deceive the nations, which has always been his chief objective is to deceive nations, rulers, people in authority, and deceive the Lord's people. That's what he excels at doing. But for this period of time, he's restrained. Here's an angel that comes down with a key to the bottomless pit. Matthew 16 and 17, the Lord Jesus Christ tells the apostle Peter, after telling Peter that thou art blessed, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood had not revealed this unto thee, and what he had revealed unto him was the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He said, flesh and blood didn't do it, and my Father in heaven did it. And unto thee I'll give thee the keys, plural, to the kingdom of heaven. Now these are keys that he gave to Peter, an apostle. 
It's not the keys of hell and death in Revelation 1 and 18. It's not the key to the bottomless pit that the angel had. It's a different set of keys. It's a, these are keys of information. In fact, you read in Luke eleven fifty two where the Lord addresses the lawyers of the day. And the lawyers of that day were those who had expertise in the law. That's different than lawyers that we think about today. They supposedly had expertise in Moses' law. He says, ye lawyers, says, you have the key of knowledge, but you shut up the kingdom of heaven and will not enter in and hinder those that would. Now here's somebody that's actually hindering somebody from entering into the kingdom of heaven. That's not heaven itself. It's the kingdom of heaven. People need to understand the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is that which represents the Lord here on this earth. It's like a bank. A bank has headquarters somewhere, and then they have multiple branches. And those branches represent the bank, the headquarters, you see. And so the kingdom of heaven represents heaven itself here on this earth. And the apostle Peter, as an apostle, had those keys. I don't have those keys. They don't belong to me. They belong to Peter and the apostles. I don't have the key to the bottomless pit. That belongs to the angel that came down from heaven. I don't have the keys of hell and death. And I do not have the key of David. Now David is one of the most important figures in the Bible for a number of reasons. David's name is mentioned in the Bible more than any other individual, including Christ. He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in more ways than we have time to speak about this morning. That's not what we want to speak about. But his name means beloved. Remember what did the father say concerning his son Jesus Christ when he was baptized on the mountain of transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. David was a man after God's own heart. Certainly picturing how Christ as God's beloved son was near and dear to the father you see. He's mentioned well over a thousand times in the Bible. He's mentioned 59 times alone in the New Testament. Why would somebody live several hundred years before Christ, lived in the Old Testament day, why would he be such an important figure in the New Testament day? And is he an important figure for us today? Yes, he is. Because in prophecy, and all prophecies were fulfilled to a jot and a tittle, you will find where the Lord Jesus Christ was prophesied to come through the lineage of Abraham and from the house of David and the tribe of Judah. If he was the promised Messiah, if he's who he said he was, if he's true the Son of God, he would have to be of the seed of David. So was he. If he was not, then the Messiah has not come. That's why it's important even today. If he has not, then he's not the Son of God. How does the New Testament start out? Matthew 1.1. The generation of Jesus Christ, all right, the revelation of the generation of Jesus Christ of the seed, or excuse me, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew says he's the son of David. How in the world is he the son of David? You might say, well, I thought Joseph was his father. Well, Joseph was his legal father. You might say Joseph was his adopted father. Joseph was not the biological father of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the son of God. But Matthew 1.1 says he's the son of David. When Christ was ministering 30 years later after his birth, you find different ones who came to him for him to help them, and they addressed him like this. Look in Matthew chapter 9, there's two blind men, one of these is blind Bartimaeus. You read over here in Mark 10. 
And these two blind men, blind Bartimaeus being one of them, when they saw Jesus pass by, addressed him like this, Lord, thou son of David. Why did they say that? Because they believed he was the son of David. And David's been dead for hundreds of years. He had a lot of sons, biologically, right? We're a hundred years down the road, but in some sense, he's the son of David. In Matthew chapter 15, there's a woman of Cana. She comes to the Lord Jesus Christ because she's got a daughter who's uh, has a serious problem being vexed with the devil. She comes to Christ for help. She addresses him like this, Lord, thou son of David. The multitudes in Matthew 22 said the same thing. You go to Matthew 22 and, and Jesus asked this question. He says, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? That shows you how important this is because Christ asked the question. He won those scribes to answer this question. Whose son is he? In fact, it's mentioned Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whose son is he? They said the son of David. But that was not all. If he's the son of David, he also must be the son of God, which they did not confess. They said the son of David. So David, then Jesus said, well then how does David in spirit call him Lord? He's quoting from the Psalms in Psalms 110. How does David then in spirit call him Lord? Saying unto him, O Lord, set thou on my right hand and make thy means thy footstool. If Jesus was only the son of David, David would not have addressed him as Lord. But he addressed him as Lord for a reason. Because Jesus was before David. And we'll get to Lord really in just a moment. So he's the son of David. Being the son of David, he must be the seed of David. 2 Timothy 2 and 18. The apostle Paul tells Timothy, he says, Remember how that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Why would Paul put that in there? Why would Paul put that? I think 2 Timothy 2, 8 actually. Why would Paul put that in there? Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David. Because he's not the seed of David. He's not Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus Christ, the son of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He says, remember that. Romans 1, 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ who of the flesh was of the seed of David, but declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, by the power of the resurrection. Notice he was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection, but concerning him as the, as the Son of David, he came according, or he was of the seed of David according to the flesh, his humanity. So Paul thought it was important to write it that way to the Romans. He thought that was that important to address Timothy in that manner and in that way. So we come over here to the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1, 31 and 32, we find an angel coming to Mary. And by the way, Mary and Joseph was of the seed or of the, the lineage of David, the house of David. That'll come into play a little later on. So we find where... <clears throat> The angel says unto Mary, Thou shalt conceive and bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and unto him shall the Father, come at God, give him the throne of David. Jesus, in some sense of the word, is going to reign on the throne of David. David reigned for 40 years as king of Israel. Seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. And his reign as king is the standard which all kings uh, and their reigns was compared to. In some sense, God is going to give David, who's of the seed of David, the son of God, the son of David, rather, he's going to give his son the throne of David. 
And you go back and you read 2 Samuel 7 and 12 and you see why this is important. Because when David's about to leave this world, God comes to him and says, When thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. Notice the word sleep is used here representative of death. Not soul sleep, spirit sleep, but when death comes, the spirit and soul leaves the body, separate and the body goes to heaven, and the body remains here until the second coming of the Lord in a state of sleep. Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I'll raise uh, of your seed up, it says, and he shall, and I shall establish his kingdom which shall be forever. Now historically he's talking about Solomon. Solomon is raised from David, and Solomon likewise will reign for 40 years, but he says he'll reign forever. He's pointing to a greater David, to a greater Solomon, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why the angel says that he'll give you the throne of David. He's going to give him the throne of David, son of David, seed of David, throne of David. Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the angels come. And they say unto you, unto the shepherd, unto you is born this day in the city of David, in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Where was the city of David? It's Bethlehem. Very interested how Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem. That's not where him, Joseph and Mary lived. Joseph and Mary lived 80 miles from Bethlehem in a place called Nazareth, a city that was looked down upon by the population in general among the Jews. 80 miles. Now, 80 miles in that day is a lot longer than 80 miles is today. You can travel 80 miles a day in your car in about an hour and a half, maybe less. Right? Unless you've got to go through Atlanta. But anyway, you can travel 80 miles in less than an hour and a half. 80 miles back then, you traveled on foot. Maybe on a, a donkey. Camel. What are they doing down in Bethlehem? Luke chapter 2 opens up. And Caesar Augustus is the ruling uh, Caesar in Rome at this time. And he's going to tax the known world at that time. The Roman Empire has existed in that day. Every 14 years, there was a census taken. And the Jews were required to go back to their hometown where their family came from. And they would arrest it. They would assign their name, where they lived, list their property, and pay their taxes. Things ain't changed much, have it? That's why they're in Bethlehem. And, while, and, they're, and they're at Bethlehem just about the time that Jesus is going to be born. And you know why? Because Micah 5 and 2 says Bethlehem is the place where Jesus is going to be born, not Nazareth. Had it not been for Augustus Caesar's tax program, Joseph and Mary would not have been in Bethlehem. They'd have been back in Nazareth. But Micah said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So they got to get to Bethlehem at a certain time so Jesus can be born. Caesar Augustus had no idea in the world what was going on. Do you know that? He didn't say, well, you know, I've got to figure out a way to get Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem. He don't even know Joseph and Mary. He don't know one thing about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God in his providence arranged things in such a manner and way that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem just like Micah the prophet said that he would be. The city of David. Bethlehem is known as the birthplace of Christ, but... A lot more went on in Bethlehem than most people understand. Bethlehem is where Jacob's wife, Rachel, died and was buried. Bethlehem is the place where Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, Jacob's youngest son. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem 
The house of bread is where the bread of life is going to be born. Appropriate, wouldn't you think? The Lord Jesus Christ who said repeatedly in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven, is going to be born in the city, which means the house of bread. It's the place where Ruth was married. You might want to know what the sneakers of that is. Well, Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. The first time David is mentioned in the Bible is in the book of Ruth, the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. And you'll find where Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a child named Obed. He gets married, has a child named Jesse. He gets married, and he has at least eight sons, the youngest, which is David. So Bethlehem's a very important city. Just out, just on the outskirts, you might say, of Jerusalem, a city that God appointed where he uh, had his name placed there for divine worship. So we have Jesus, the son of David, of the seed of David, to reign on the throne of David, born in the city of David. Now, I look over here in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and you're going to find a book is brought to our attention here. It has seven seals. This is not the Lamb's book of life. This is a book that has a lot of revelation in the book that's contained in the book of Revelation. So John, the apostle John, is weeping because he found no man worthy to loose the seals of this book. No man in heaven, no man on the earth. No man under the earth. But an angel says, weep not, John, for the line of the tribe of Judah, that shows he came from the tribe of Judah like the Old Testament said he would. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed. Now we come over here to the book of Revelation chapter 22 and the latter part of it over here and here's what Jesus said about that. He said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I am the root of David, I'm the offspring of David, I'm the bright and morning star. Generally speaking, you don't see a root. A root is underground, out of sight. How does Isaiah describe the Lord in Isaiah 53? Lord, who hath believed our report? Who hath uh, the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow from a tender plant as a root out of dry ground. The root is beneath the soil. The root is underneath. You do not see the root. But he says, I'm the bright and morning star. The root no man sees. The bright and morning star everybody sees. It's up in the heavens. It's in the sky. The bright morning star is up in the sky for everybody to see. Nobody sees the root, but everybody sees the star. That's a picture of the Lord's humility. The root's a picture of his humility, his humanity in this world here. A root out of dry ground. But the star speaks of all, speaks of majesty and exaltation. And there's his divinity, you see. He's the root, and he's also the offspring of David. That means he's before David. He was after David as the root. He brings David into existence. As the offspring, he's of the seed of David. And he's the bright in the morning star for everybody to see. That's why David's important. Thus saith he that is true. But thus saith he that is holy. Thus saith he that is true. Thus saith he that hath the key of David, that has authority. Demands the affairs of God, the affairs of heaven, the affairs here on this earth, the affairs of the kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6, Unto us a child is born, us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder. Why? Because he is the key of David. 
He has the key of David. His name is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. It's extremely important to understand and believe and know by biblical account that Jesus Christ was the son of David. Born hundreds of years after David lived on this earth, but he's the son of David, of the seed of David, given the throne of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the house of bread, and he's the root and is the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. All right, now as the, having the key of David, he makes a very important statement. He says, I open and no man shutteth, and I shutteth and no man openeth. The expression no man, used twice here. If there's one statement in the Bible that puts man in his place, it's the expression no man. No man. If you listen to the political leaders of the land, it's always their job, I suppose, to tell us how great we are. It's their job to tell us we're the greatest nation that's ever existed. In some ways, I would agree with them. It's their job, I suppose, to get up here and just tell people you can achieve anything that you think about. Sky's the limit. In fact, there's no limit at all. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. I've never heard such nonsense in all my life. There's a lot of things we can't do. That's not just thinking, thinking positive. That's thinking irresponsible. The expression, no man's mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament. Take time to read it. I'm just going to give you a sampling of what no man can do. All right? John chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord Jesus Christ said, no man has seen God at any time. No man has. But he is of the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. Talking about Christ. Christ declared the Father of whom no man has ever seen face to face. You know, if you walk out at noontime on a bright sunny day, you know if you try to look directly into sunlight, which would be very dangerous, do not do it, children. You can ruin your eyesight in a hurry. You wouldn't have to stare but just a few seconds at best to ruin your eyesight. You cannot just stand and stare right into the sunlight because of the brightness of the sunlight, and that pales, to, that pales in comparison to seeing the face of God. No man has seen God's face. But Jesus Christ came, God manifested in flesh, and Jesus Christ declared him. He told Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, Thomas asked a question, show us the Father. And Jesus said, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Nicodemus comes to the Lord in John 3, 1 and 2. He comes at night. And he says, we know that no man can do the miracles thou doest except God be with them. True. In verse 13, the Lord Jesus Christ says, No man has ascended into heaven, but he, he which has descended, the Son of Man which is in heaven. That's, that's a really <laughs> interesting statement. No man has ascended to heaven. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only man who had the power to leave earth and go to heaven. But he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, when he said that, he's on the earth, but he's teaching his omnipresence. He's everywhere present and nowhere absent. John 6 and 44, the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come unto me. Hear people talk all the time, all you got to do is come to the Lord, come to the Lord. Jesus says, No man can come to me. Except, thank God for the exception. I'm looking at a lot of exceptions right out here this morning. You look at an exception right here. 
No man can come unto me except the Father who sent me draw him. How many exceptions are we talking about? Ever how many of God, how many, how many children of God there are? That's how many exceptions there are. God makes an exception for every child of promise, every heir of grace, every covenant child. There's an exception made because God will draw them by nature. They're dead, trespassed sin, and no man could come unto him except the Father which sent him draw him. You won't have a stronger doctrinal text in the Bible than that one. Said twice in John chapter 6. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, I might take it again. Then in verse 18 he says, And no man taketh it from me. Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross, but only because Christ was submissive and allowed them to take him into custody. If he had not allowed them, they never could have done it. Never could have done it. Remember when they came to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he spoke, they all fell back like dead men, just in his voice. No man taketh it from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. He then goes on to say this. He said, I know my sheep. To hear my voice, they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. My Father's gave them me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I'm giving you a few things that no man can do right here. And I'm only giving you a sampling of it. Just a sampling. John 14, 6, Jesus said, No man cometh to the Father except by me. No man cometh to the Father except by me. How many, how many ways are there? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. How many ways, truth, and life is? I am the way, singular, the truth, singular, and the life, singular. No man. The no man doctrine. I, I like studying the no man doctrine every once in a while. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. The Apostle John said, And no man can call Jesus accursed by the Holy Spirit. If he's speaking by the Holy Spirit, he cannot call Jesus accursed. Then he says, No man can say God is the Father except by the Holy Ghost. Apart from the Holy Ghost, no man can say that God is the Father. No man can. And we have no exceptions for this. No man. You come over to 1 Timothy 6 and 16, you're going to find where God dwells in the light which no man can approach. Because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the only potentate. I just gave you a sampling of it. Now, here's what the Lord said. He said, Thus saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, I shut and no man opens, and I open and no man can shut. In Genesis chapter 7, I find where God tells Noah he's going to cause it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. You reckon those on the outside of the ark would have stopped it from raining if they could have? After it had been raining for a week and two weeks and three weeks or whatever, you think they could have stopped it from raining? <laughs> you think they wanted to stop it from raining? No matter how much they might have wanted to stop it from raining, they couldn't stop it from raining because God opened and no man could shut it. And God said, I'll have it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, not 39, not 41, but 40. A specific period of time because God can set those times when it starts, when it stops. In the book of James, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, we're talking about the Elijah of the Old Testament. And it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And, I, and I, Elijah prayed it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three years and six months. That's 42 months. And 42, by the way, if you want a little biblical exercise, that's also a very significant number in the Bible. Then he says he prayed it would rain 
Again, he prayed with rain, and this time it rained. The 11th chapter of Deuteronomy is a very beautiful picture. Uh, as we find a description here, given of the land of Canaan, when Israel crossed Jordan's river into it. Here's what Moses told the Israelites. He said, the land you're going to go into is not like the land you came out of. And I might just say this, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not like the world out here, so we don't want to bring the world into it. It's not like the world. It's in the world, but it's not like the world. Canaan existed, but it was unlike Egypt. He's in the land of Egypt. He says, you watered the land with your foot, irrigated it. He said, but this land here doesn't have that kind of means. You're going to depend upon me. It's a land the Lord, don't you notice his language, a land the Lord cared for, a land the Lord's eyes were on continuously from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. There was never a time during the year God's eyes were not over this land that he cared for. He said, I'll give you the latter rain, I'll give you the former rain. In your obedience, the rain will come. It'll come at the right time. I'll give you the former rain, I'll give you the latter rain. God can just turn the rain on and off just like you'd turn a faucet on and off in your house. He can open and no man can shut. And he can shut and no man can open. He said, but in your disobedience, he says, I'll shut up heaven. In their disobedience, when they'd eat in rain, you'd think they'd have opened up heaven and got rain if they could, but they couldn't. You know why? Because God shut it up. He said, I open and no man shutteth, and I shut and no man openeth. That shows God's omnipotent power and also his sovereignty. Has to do with the rains. How about the sea? When Israel come to the Red Sea, God opened the Red Sea, right? He sent a strong east wind that blew upon the sea, divided two great walls of water, and the nation of Israel crossed across the Red Sea, dry shot to the other side without the loss of one. He opened up and no man could shut it upon them. Then the Egyptians thought they would try to get across the same way. When the Egyptians started across, God brought the water back. He shut the water and no man could open it. Just that simple. I open, no man shutteth, and I shut, and no man openeth. Thus saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. I open, no man shuts, and I shut, and no man opens. How about, how about the wombs of women? I find where the Lord shut up the wombs of the women of Abimelech where him and his wife and the women of his kingdom could not bear children. That's when Abraham went down there. I read in 1 Samuel chapter 1 where a woman of the name of Hannah did not have any children because God had shut up her womb. But she prayed. And I read later in that chapter it says, The Lord remembered her. Elkanah, her husband, knew her and she conceived. Then God opened up her womb. God can close and he can open. If he closes, no man can open. If he opens, no man can close. When it comes to um, God doing things and opening up the mouth uh, of animals to do unusual things, or closes them. God has the power to do that, doesn't he? You remember when there was a man by the name of Balaam riding upon an ass? And he's in disobedience to God. God's not pleased with him. And God enables that ass to see something Balaam can't. He opens up the eyes of that ass to see something. He sees an angel standing there with a sword drawn in his hand. Balaam don't see it. They're both looking in the same direction. The ass sees it. Balaam doesn't. 
And then all of a sudden, the Lord opened up the mouth of the ass. He starts talking to Balaam. <laughs> I never get tired of reading that. <laughs> I never read anything out of the ordinary any more than that, any more unusual than that. And in the very fact, he's so angry, he's so beside himself, he's so much in a rage, he didn't know what he was doing. He starts talking with him. Somebody come by and say, who are you talking to, Balaam? Well, I'm talking to this ass right here. That's who I'm talking to. You must have, been, you must have a sunstroke. But if they'd have stopped and listened, they'd have heard two voices and only one man. Right? Just one man. Daniel's in a den of lions. The king comes in the next morning and said, Oh, Daniel, is God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee? And what did Daniel say? He said, God came last night and shut the mouth of the lions. And I suffered no harm. God can close and no man can open. We can open and no man can close. From a spiritual point of view, listen to this promise God makes over here in Malachi 3.10. He says in Israel, he says, bring all your tithes into the storehouse and prove me. Now they were under a tithing system back then. He said, you bring all your tithes, not some of you bring all your tithes into the storehouse and prove me and see if I not open up the windows of heaven and pull you out a blessing that you'll not be able to see the fullness thereof. God can do that. He can do that. In Psalm 78, I read where Israel's in the wilderness, and the Bible says God opened up the doors of heaven and sent down manna from on high. I come to Psalms 104, and it says God opened up a rock, and water gushed out of the rock. Israel was taken care of for 40 years because God opened up heaven and rained down manna, and God opened up a rock, and water gushed out and took care of the thirst of the entire one million people plus and all their animals and all their beasts. God can open, can he not? And no man can shut. I come to the book of Luke chapter 1. There's a man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, been praying for a child. The Lord's going to bless them to have a child. And the angel comes to Zechariah and tells Zechariah, thy prayers have been, uh, alms have come up before me. Your prayers are going to be answered. You're going to have a child. And we find where Zechariah answered with doubt, and the Lord shut his mouth. He couldn't open it for nine months. You don't think Zechariah tried to talk during those nine months? I guarantee you, every day he opened his mouth and no sound came out. Because God shut it and he couldn't open it. But at the end of nine months, when the baby's born, they come to the household there and they want to name him John. I mean, excuse me, Zechariah. And his wife said, oh, his name is John. They appeal to John. John asked for a writing to him. He still can't talk. And he writes on there, his name is John. And when he said that, his mouth was opened and he was able to speak. Thus saith he that is true, he that is holy, he that hath the key of David. I open no man shuts and I shut and no man can open. God could give us a vaccine for this coronavirus tomorrow if he wanted to. He may not give us one at all. It's not a sure thing. Or he may give it to us six months down the road. I don't know. I just know God can open, no man can shut. I don't care how much we want to have a vaccine. If God shuts the door, we're not getting one. On the other hand, we need to be praying for one. 
and asking God to extend a hand of mercy unto us. Because we're talking about God who can open, no man can shut, and a God who can shut, no man can open. And I'll kind of draw this to a conclusion. I've just got started good. But I'll just draw this conclusion from Luke chapter 24. And the Lord Jesus Christ, because there's a spiritual application. Everything I've just said, there's a spiritual application. Remember over there in the life of Elisha, when his servant looks out and sees the enemy, his horses and chariots all around him. I know that's not in Luke 24, but I'll get back to Luke 24. I'm in 2 Kings 6 right now. And there's horses and chariots all around. And he comes and he's all shook up and everything else. He's, the fear of man is right here, see. He's all shook up. And he tells Elisha about it. Elisha prays that his eyes might be opened. And God opened his eyes. He takes another look and he sees another army. Except this is an army of horses and chariots of fire. Which of fire is not, as two words, does not describe the enemy's army. It describes God's army. Now we go to Luke 24. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ comes walking on that road from Emmaus, or Emmaus, ever how you want to say it. People like to say Missouri, people like to say Missouri, and people like to say misery. Uh, you can take any one of the three you want. Remember that time I was talking about? <laughs> anyway, I won't I waste more time. Anyway, we find on the road to Emmaus. And the Lord joins up himself to him. And here's something really interesting to me. It says they were talking. That's all he had to say. But the Lord says more than that. They were talking, they were communing, and they were reasoning together. And that word reasoning together means to investigate. This was a serious conversation going on with these two, and they were talking about the Lord. But the Bible says their eyes were holding. That means to arrest and to seize. God arrested their eyesight and shut it off. Now they could see, naturally, but they could not recognize that Jesus was who they're talking about. And they're talking, visiting there. And finally Jesus says something, and they say, are you a stranger in these parts? <laughs> then Jesus said, old fools and slow of heart to believe, won't not Christ have suffered, enter into his glory. And then he made like he would go a little bit further, and they constrained him to stay with them for a while. If you want Jesus in your home, you want Jesus in the church, you want Jesus in your own life, then you need to constrain him. Make him feel welcome. I don't know why the Lord would bless us at all in this nation. Can you, how do you think the Lord feels? you think the Lord feels welcome in this country anymore? you think the Lord feels welcome? Now I know, thank God, there's a few of his children, his righteous, that do love him and welcome him into their homes, and that's the only reason we're doing as well as we are. And then they invite him into their home. And then the Lord, there was a meal, and the Lord blessed it. And the Lord vanished out of their sight. And here's what they said. They said, did not our hearts burn while he was yet with us and opened unto us the scriptures? And then the Lord appears to his disciples. And the Bible says in verses 44 and 45, that the Lord opened up the scriptures so their understanding might be opened. The Lord opened up, the Lord opened up three things in that chapter. He opened up the eyes of those two. He opened up the scriptures, and he opened up their understanding. When you read Acts chapter 16, you'll find where the apostle Paul is uh, meeting on the seaside in a place called Macedonia. And you're going to find a woman there by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple, whose heart the Lord opened. 
I'll close here with the book of Revelation chapter 4 where the apostle John's on the, you know, on the Isle of Patmos. He's writing the book of Revelation. He says in chapter 4, he looked, he heard a sound, a sound of a trumpet. He looked and heaven was opened. And all kind of wonderful things became available for the apostle John to write in the book of Revelation. Thus saith he that is holy, he that is true, and he hath the key of David, for I shut and no man opens, and I open and no man shuts. First Corinthians 16, 9, the Apostle Paul said, There's a, a great door, uh, op- a great door and effectual open unto us, but there are many adversaries. Second Corinthians 2 12, the Apostle Paul said, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel, he said, An effectual door was opened unto me. Colossians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul asked this church to pray for him that his mouth might be opened and he might have the spirit of utterance to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are things we need to be praying for that God might be pleased to open. Open the mouth of his servants. They might have liberty to preach the gospel of the Son of God. Open up doors of opportunity of labor. Open up doors of opportunity uh, where you can engage in conversation and have a reasonable expectation, inviting somebody to come to the house of God. And there will be opposition, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. There's a great door and effectual open to me, but there are many adversaries. Thus saith he that hath the key of David, I open, no man shuts, and I shut, and no man opens.